Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A little bit of a calm feel to some of this early morning uh, trading after yesterday's rampant sell-off. And I want to get some perspective here from someone who actually has been trading markets for decades, and we can do that with Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg News. Vince, what's your takeaway from yesterday? They weren't playing around yesterday, were they? No, no, not at all. That was uh, that was quite a route. Um, I think it was some. I think what we saw yesterday was some really weak, uh, long positions, uh, which have been built up for about a week and a half after some weak, short positions. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of going on. A lot of day trading. Uh, a lot of algo trading when we went through 4,000 on the S&P yesterday was major uh, capitulation uh, with uh, with the sell-off. Um, Al- algos uh, driving stops lower, and and we're seeing some of this going on today and this morning. Uh, it almost feels like the day's over and we should go home already. <laughs> uh, the trading is very very quiet. It's very modest. Uh, as I'm looking over at the tape right now, uh, the average is giving back all of the morning gains just about. Uh, with the S&P cash up just about six. Yep. So, Vince, you know, you've been out there, I think, with a call that says, you know, the Fed can really pause if it wants to. I mean, inflation in a lot of parts of the economy is has peaked, is rolling over. They don't need to be overly aggressive. The market yesterday kind of said, well, gee, maybe that CPI print changes that a little bit. How do you, how do you think, you know, the Fed will view all this stuff? I, I think the Fed's going to look past that one number, um, and I would caution people to look past that one number as well. I know it, it obviously uh, took a lot out of the street yesterday and, and wiped a lot of uh, the market out, but it's potentially actually a good opportunity. I mean, we consumer inflation expectations, and you know, just as a reminder, inflation is an expectation phenomenon. It's 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 what people think is going to happen, and that kind of manifests itself into reality in the future. Inflation expectations on a year-over-year basis are continuing to drop. And we've basically been seeing producer prices drop as well. And, you know, the trend in CPI on a month-over-month basis is lower also, with the exception, obviously, of Tuesday's number. So I think what we really need to do is, like, you know, as – CPI, CPI, which was Tuesday's trash, could be uh, Thursday's uh, fortune if retail sales comes in lower than expected. Because what I expect to see as we go into the end of the year is slower growth, 
uh, the Fed is, is definitely, I think, going to push us close to, if not into, a recession. Um, and prices and, and consumer expectations will fall. How about, I mean, again, just thinking about yesterday's action, was it a sense that the market overreacted yesterday? Or as you maybe suggested, there were just some weak longs out there? I think it's actually a little of both. Well, I think uh, there was something of an overreaction. Um, I mean, let's face it, it really is just one number, all, all things being equal. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's not a lot of confidence, I think, either side of this market. You have a lot of people still in cash, not feeling good about equities. We got a little bit ginned up over the last week and a half uh, after a major sell-off. And, and I think those positions were wiped out. Remember, going into the CPI number, the Dow was up almost 250. And I was talking to traders just before the data, and we were kind of like, what the heck are these people thinking? That's pretty, optim- that's pretty optimistic going into a, a, a data print like this. And, and I think that was a, a big part of it, too. People were just so like worked up uh, going into that number, and they absolutely got crushed. Vince, the traders you talk to, do they believe a soft landing is possible, or are they just saying, you know what, it's either we're in or we're going into a recession, it's just a question of how deep. Where do you think trader sentiment is these days? I, I don't I don't think there's a good feel about a soft landing. I, yep. I, com- I commented about a month ago, the only soft landing we've seen in the last 25 years was Sully on the Hudson. Um, yep. <laughs> most, most of the traders... Most of the traders, if not all of the traders I talk to, think that we're going to hit a wall, that the Fed is going to push us into a recession of sorts. They, they by and large, see equities lower at the end of the year. I disagree with that notion, but I think I'm a little bit in a minority there. But by and large, they see us going into a recession. They, they see the Fed um, overreacting, if you will, um, and pushing a little bit too hard on the pedal, and, and things are going to be softer as we head into next year. So at, when we hear from the Fed next week, Vince, I mean, do you think we'll get any kind of body language as to we're going to wait and see how we're going to wait here and see how the past, you know, rate hikes impact this economy? Or do you think we might get some body language about, nope, we're still focused on inflation and we're signaling some more rate hikes? I think the latter. It would be very surprising for me uh, to see them uh, to see Powell shift from the Jackson Hole speech just a, just a few weeks ago yep. to a, a more modest sort of um, neutral lean, if you will. I think he's going to stay where he was, quite hawkish, um, which is what the market expects. Uh, if, if he should lean to like we're waiting and seeing, uh, we'll probably see a massive rally because that would be very very dovish of him. But uh, more likely than not, he's going to stay on the theme that he painted for Jackson Hole. I would hope that the next uh, set of month or so of data uh, will be some moderation. Because let's face it, it, it does take six to 12 months for the monetary policy to get through the economy. And, and they're not really giving any – they're not giving anything they've done any time yet. There seems to be a panic on the part of the FOMC, and I think it has a lot to do with them uh, totally missing the boat with their transient uh, philosophy, yep. and and now they're worried they're going to lose credibility once again by not moving too quickly, and it's very possible they'll lose credibility by moving too quickly. Yeah, interesting to see. It feels like they're kind of playing catch-up here, and that might impact their decision-making going forward. We shall see. Vince Signorella, 
global macro strategist for Bloomberg News, giving us his thoughts. Vince just kind of had the call here that uh, he thought that maybe we would get a pause here in the rates after this rate increase coming up uh, next week, and that would be enough for risk assets. We'll have to see how that plays out. The consensus seems to be you know, on the other side of that trade. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's switch gears to technology again. We welcome to the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Amit Walia. He's the CEO at Informatica. Informatica is a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. INFA is a ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. It's got a market cap of uh, $6 billion. Went public just last October. Uh, IPO, a bunch of uh, underwriters there at 29 stocks at 21 and change. Amit, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Give us the story the Informatica story. Give us the 30 seconds, what we need to know about your company and what you guys are doing in that big technology stack. Well, first of all, thanks, great to be here. Uh, you know, lots happening right now. If you think about us, you know, we're in this next 10 years of digital transformation that'll happen. By the way, last 10 years was all about digital modernization. So it's all gonna be about transforming your business with the help of tech, and it's all about cloud data and AI. What we do is we sit in the middle called data management. You know, this whole fragmentation of data, many types of data, how do you basically help companies understand the data, figuring out customer churn, supply chain, figuring out their data governance and privacy problems, figuring out what if analysis to run their businesses with analytics. That's what we do in the middle. We're the only platform company at scale running with a billion dollar of subscription ARR and a cloud platform. That's what we do. How do you say it to, I mean, Paul gets this because he ran basically a data business mm -hmm. um, when he put together Bloomberg Intelligence, right? You're right. bringing in all Lots the data, data. feeds Lots to your analysts yep. out of Princeton and spreading them around the world. Somebody at a dinner party <laughs> maybe says, I, you know, I don't understand a word yeah. you just said. I heard data and I get what data is. I know what the cloud is kind of, yeah. platform, you're sort of losing me. What, what do you do? Take two examples. Take, yeah. take somebody like you know, Unilever, 96 countries running the supply chain. They want to understand. They make um, Hellman's mayonnaise, yeah. delicious. How I, but how do I bring the yeah. suppliers to bring the products to my customers as fast as I can? That's a data problem. That's what we help. On the other side, Kroger. How do I bring the right products on the right shelf at the right time so I can save costs by not losing money by wasted product, as well as good customer side by getting the right product right? That's the kind of data problems we solve on a daily basis. Or Twitch, a gaming company. How do I make sure the gamers get real-time understanding of what the games are doing? That's the kind of problems we solve. So how are you making money then out of that? Or uh, you know, do you plan to be making money out of that soon? Oh, well, so the thing is that we are a profitable company running um, at 20 plus points of operating margin and cash flow. 
And uh, so that's, we've been a profitable company throughout. We went private, we came out of the privatization, we run 80 points of gross margin. We never lost sight of, we run a profitable company. And yep. we've never but done a I, I'm just looking for, a, I was looking for a PE ratio, right? And I don't see that because the E is still minus. Okay, if you look forward though, I'm looking at the FA function, we've got the 20, the street. 76, 76 cents forecast for this year. Um, and 90 cents next. Yeah, and 90 cents next year. But so we, we've seen that the whole tech space, yeah. really this year, get hammered your stock's not immune to that mm -hmm. Talk, tell us about the, your business yeah. today what are your customers telling you we've got rising interest rates we've got the threat of a recession what are your customers telling you yeah, i think look no doubt there's uncertainty out there yep. but customers are also figuring out that if they don't focus on the long-term mission critical transformation they won't get out of this a great example by the way is in the COVID times in april 2020 american airlines bet on our platform and i spoke to them like airlines were grounded why yeah, are sure. you and the goal was if i don't understand my customer churn during this time when i come out on the other side i'll be left holding the bag they won the innovation award at our customer conference so Large customers are thinking like that. Yes, there's absolute, uh, you know, elongated sales cycles across the board, but transformation of that scale is not going to slow down. So what happened? I mean, your stock was flying high after the IPO. You got up to almost $40 a share. And with everyone else at the beginning of this year, um, investors started to sell and now you're trading for half that. So what, what happened, do you think, not just to you, but mm -hmm. to the entire market? But look, there is needless to say a huge amount of multiple correction you guys were talking about, right? There was obviously an all-time high for across-the-board tech. I think we got caught up from our side in the growth at all stock kind of story. We are not a growth at all <laughs> or a growth at all cost kind of company. I do think that there is an element of that going on. But as long as you keep growing at our scale, a billion dollar of subscription ARR, mid-30s, and you keep printing cash flow and operating margin, you'll get to that. Now, of course, we are all sitting in this middle, seeing markets change. You gotta keep your eye on solving customer problems. We're all gonna come out on the other side with things correct itself, for sure. I'm looking at my PGEO function on the Bloomberg terminal, it just shows from geography where you get your revenue. Yeah. Most of it's outside the, the US for you guys, is that right? No, that's not true. Oh, that's we, not true, okay. We're about 65% US, 35% okay. non-US. Okay, so how is your non-US business doing? Because I think about Europe, I think about Asia with the lockdowns, and all you know, companies that have to deal with those types of markets, what are you seeing there? Actually, Europe and Asia did pretty fine for us so far. I think barring FX, that's obviously surprising all of us. You can't control how strong the dollar is right now. In terms of raw demand, Europe actually held pretty well for us even last quarter and even so, I mean, actually I'm flying up to London as we speak over at the, at the end of this week. Okay. We haven't seen demand. For the funeral? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna figure out if I can drive into the city of London, but. It's gonna uh, be, it's gonna be busy. Uh, it's going to yeah. be busy. So demand hasn't slowed down there. FX definitely a big headwind for all of us. FX has been amazing to watch. And uh, we thought it was going to turn around a little bit on Monday. But now the uh, King Dollar is back with a vengeance. Does that make it um, easier for you or uh, more difficult because of the volatility? Actually, mix of both. Top line, obviously harder, no doubt. Uh, but we are also a very well-hedged company. We have our presence across the globe. We have a lot of OPEX sitting outside the US, US as well. We have a big development center in India as an example. So the strong dollar helps us there. So what we have the headwind on the top line on FX becomes actually a tailwind on the cost side for us. All right, Amit, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Amit Walia, CEO of Informatica. Joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, getting the update on his company, Informatica. Again, INFA uh, is the symbol into uh, that software space, which has been uh, you know, such a source of growth for investors for such a long time. Uh, 
a lot of these stocks, these technology stocks, in addition to the market in general, taking it on the on the chin, but certainly uh, the technology stocks are really bearing the brunt here on this rising interest rate environment. But boy, you got to think about the long-term growth trends associated with tech spending a lot there. Let's go to Robert Teeter. He's head of investment policy and strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Boy, Robert, yesterday, if you're a head of investment policy and strategy group, everybody's looking to you at the 401 yesterday. What'd you tell your team? Yeah, it's a great question. And it was, as you've noted, one of the wildest days to the downside in a long time. I think one of the themes that we've focused on has been something we focused on really from the beginning of this pandemic era, which is patience and taking some context. And I think as many others have noted, um, yesterday's move was really only a reversal of about one week's worth of gains in the prior week. And so that's something that we really focused in on of saying, yes, there's been a change here. Yes, the inflation number was worse than expected. Um, our work shows that inflation versus expectations is a really critical reason for forward returns in that month window between uh, CPI readings. But overall, it really took us back just about a week in terms of where the S&P had been. And so that says that there was a lot of optimism built into that report. Uh, didn't come through quite as planned, but I think the CPI print wasn't quite as bad uh, as yesterday's numbers in isolation would have made it out to be, really more a reversal of the prior week. So again, this concept of patience and sort of looking through the numbers a little bit, things are going to take some time to settle down. Do you think there was do you think there were opportunities created yesterday or do we still need to Gary Schilling, who normally is uh, very conservative, yes. he's very reserved. Um, he's a, he's a very polite man. Yes, I've known yes. him for yep. uh, 48 years now. Really? Yeah, I, I grew up with him. Oh, but yesterday or, or no, on Monday, he said we haven't seen the market puke yet. Oh, and until go. that kind of regurgitation happens <laughs> until um, your like average investor sells his last stock and says, I'm never going to buy one again. All right. Um, uh, then you, th then you're not going to see this, um, these drops can, um, stop. What do you think? I think yesterday was a pretty good indication of that. You certainly had uh, very high readings in terms of stocks trading down versus up uh, near, you know, near record levels. Uh, in my view, to really firmly get into that camp of feeling that we're out of the woods, um, it will take another two to three solid prints on CPI. Again, I don't think yesterday was quite as bad as it seemed, uh, but it sort of resets the clock a little bit in terms of expectations. And I think CPI inflation really is the most critical indicator on the, on the short-term outlook. Um, I think as we think ahead to, to next year and things like that, earnings are a bit more important. But in the short term, it's all about inflation here and all about that process of uh, forward rates. We think there's a really strong relationship uh, between the, the forward rate curve and expectations on the terminal rate versus how the market's been trading in the short term. Uh, and that's something that we've got a very close eye on as, as we look to these, these interim periods in between CPI readings, which really have become uh, the most important metric in the markets in the short term. How about valuation? I'm an old equities analyst. How do you guys think about valuation in this market right here, particularly after yesterday's sell-off? I know a lot of people still have earnings concerns, uh, you know, the back half of this year going into early next year. What's the valuation call for you guys? Yeah, and do you, do you uh, care more about price book or price sales than price earnings? What are the metrics that you care about? Yeah, so I focus mostly on price earnings and thinking about uh, forward earnings. So at this point, starting to think about earnings for next year, I think consensus is around plus seven or eight percent or so. We're probably more in the camp of about five percent up on earnings, just thinking that there's still some lingering problems here that, that markets are fighting through, and there's still certainly some downward pressure to come on the economy because of the, the rate cycle. But purely in terms of, of PEs, PEs have come down quite a bit. So uh, in terms of next year's earnings on consensus forecast, the S&P is at just a little bit over 16 times, which is 
pretty compelling, uh, even with rates headed a bit higher. So, you know, we and others have done a lot of work on historical rates versus PEs. And if you take the Fed at their word, take the you know, forward uh, curve at its, at its word and say that the, the terminal rate will settle in somewhere maybe four and a quarter, something like that, um, that implies a PE of around 18. So we think a little bit of progress on earnings in the next year, a little bit of recovery in valuation as you get some stabilization in CPI uh, sort of sets the backdrop for, again, this patient longer-term outlook of uh, some decent returns to be had over the next year or two. All right, Robert, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, Robert Teeter, Head of Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest Asset Management, got his undergraduate economics degree from Bucknell. Do you know the mascot for Bucknell? Mm, is it a bear? It is Bucky the Bison. Oh, it's a bison? Yes. Well, that's pretty that's cool. It's pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah, so it's not the University of Richmond spiders, but the bison's pretty cool. <laughs> spiders are unique, right? My favorite has to be the banana slug, which yes. is, I think, Santa Barbara or Santa yeah, Cruz? Uh, Santa Cruz. Santa Cal Cruz. Santa Cruz. The banana slugs. Just yeah. awesome. Apparently, there is a thing, a banana slug. Sure. Sure. I guess and, you find it uh, in Santa And they Cruz. can live through a lot. Just don't put any salt on them. No. You know? Okay, good yeah. stuff. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, what's this whole merge thing? The kids are talking about it. I the merge is... Like, a merge for me is doing a deal. Yes. Mergers and acquisitions, but that's no. not what they're talking about, is it? Well, it is a deal if you're a, a wealthy crypto person who's going to be staking and taking this network. So, basically, Ethereum, which is kind of the also-ran cryptocurrency after Bitcoin, obviously, which is the OG, is going to move from proof-of-work mining, okay. which the kids are very unhappy about how much energy it uses, to proof-of-stake mining. And then the energy usage is going to drop 99.9%, I've been told, um, to verify a transaction. So that means Oof. each transaction, instead of taking, instead of using the energy it takes to run a house for a week, it will use the energy it takes to boil a kettle of tea. Katie Greifeld joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's a cross-asset reporter. Is what Matt said remotely accurate? <laughs> no, he got it right. He I did? Mean, okay. <laughs> that, he got all the headlines in there. Moving from proof of work to proof of stake, miners kind of become 
obsolete. And the big number there, the 99% drop in energy usage, that's what people are very excited about. Of course, Bitcoin has come under so much scrutiny from lawmakers and regulators, too, about how much energy uh, mining takes up, those very powerful computers. So the merge has been in work in the works. It's been talked about for seven years, and uh, it could actually have been half be happening tonight. Uh, it's been delayed oh. several times. Because I thought it happened a couple days ago. No, we no. have an actual time, right? It's going to be, it's like 10 hours from now or yeah. something. Yeah. How can we don't have a countdown clock? We should. We needed an Ethereum there, merge countdown right clock. Right below the countdown to the close. Okay, exactly. So, I mean, does that make Ethereum, in theory, the preferred cryptocurrency uh. over Bitcoin? Well, they have different uses is what people would say. People who aren't Bitcoin maximalists, of which there are a few. So Bitcoin, like Matt said, Hey, just look the at the OG. market. The mark, you know, money talks, right? <laughs> oh, I heard that. Okay, money Bitcoin. Talks. Money never sleeps. Follow the money. There, there is Gecko. something like $400 billion worth of Bitcoin out there. But the hope is, at and least half if, you're, that in if you're an Ether bull, the flippening is going to come and Ether will replace the flippening. The what? The flippening. You got to add that to your Don't dictionary. Don't you read coins and cap? Cats? Cats no. and coins? My, that's my secret uh, weekend distribution list. I can add you to <laughs> okay. it. But, so, but if you also follow the money and look at where money has been move, moving since mid-June, Ether is up about 47%. Bitcoin what? is down over Ether's trading 1%. for like 1600 I remember when it was going You're to 4000 the, the actual price per coin. But Ether has been rallying much more than put Bitcoin in anticipation of this merge, thinking that developable developers will flock here. It's going to be a faster, cheaper network than Bitcoin, which, as Matt rightly points out, is the biggest cryptocurrency out there right now. So, I mean, I've just been watching over the last few. So the merge is something, Paul, that keeps happening or it's going to happen <laughs> and it's delayed. It's going to happen okay. and it's, it's like delayed. It's like the white whale. Yep. Now we're there. It's actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I've been watching the price of Ether like, oh, if it's really going to happen, now it's yeah. going to take off because you want to get in before, right? right? Theoretically. No. So the price of Ether just keeps going down. Well, my friend and colleague Vildana Hyrick had a great story. I think it was last week or earlier this week or at least this month. So if you look at what the derivatives market is pricing, most crypto traders are actually shorting Ether right now, the derivatives. So it could turn into a sell the news event, to your point, because markets ever forward looking. And this has been anticipated for a long time. Sure, it's been delayed over and over again. But now that we're finally Now, when here, you say traders have been shorting Ether, are these just lonely guys in their mother's basement. <laughs> it's it's not the trading desk of JP Morgan shorting. Not it's yet. not hedge funds. It's not KKR. Oh man. Or I mean the uh, you know 0. 0.72 sh shorting it. Well, it's 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 almost at that level. Yeah. Is it okay. about the brilliant traders that worked at Jane Street and now are billionaires in FTX, mm -hmm. right? I mean Sam Bankman-Fried yeah. yep, started out that way. And, and there's a great story on the terminal about his other operation as well. I think it's called Alameda is how you pronounce yes. it. The his market making firm, true. That this is just this is how they make money. Okay. So there are a lot of I mean, he may, honestly, Sam Bankman-Fried may be in his parents' basement. <laughs> he's in the Bahamas. But he's, he's a genius <laughs> who has billions of dollars worth of yeah. wealth. So, All right, that yeah. talks to me. Yeah. Uh, in any case, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Ether reacts to this. It'll be interesting to see how there are a number of uh, spinoffs or original Ether, you know, that, that are going to continue on proof of work. They're... 
um, people who don't buy into, they think proof of stake is a POS, you know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see if those make more money than Ether now uh, and to see what happens to the OG, to Bitcoin. I know. It will be interesting. And something I need to look into, Matt, is there's a bunch of Ether exchange-treated products in Europe that actually hold Ether. I need to look into how they're handling the merge because we do also have an ETF e show. We have an ETF show. Can you do an ETF on Ether? You can't in the U.S. Can't Many would yet. like to, but the SEC oh, that's won't right. I allow that whole, physically back. Right. And the ETF on Bitcoin is only on the futures of Bitcoin? Only on futures. Not on the underlying... All right. In America. But in there America. are Bitcoin ETFs in Canada and... Uh, yeah. If you right, take we'll a Eric global perspective, yeah, as okay. we do. As we do at Bloomberg. Yes. I just saw 164 offices in 74 countries. I was just walking on a floor that had that up on the terminal. We are widespread. We are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, just out of control. It's true. We are, there's, I was telling some kids from Duke this morning, there's no more global company that I've ever worked for, and that's including J.P. Morgan and City, more global than Bloomberg. Just incredible. Katie Greifeld, talking about global cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We have a looming railroad strike, um, and I think it's a big issue because it affects so much of uh, the economy in the U.S. I mean, you think about it, I mean, we're just kind of seeing some light at the end of the tunnel from the supply chain issues associated with the, uh, the pandemic. And now potentially have a rail strike on the freight, and that could be a big issue across a number of verticals there. So let's bring in Kim Chipman. She's a reporter. She covers agricultural, food, water, and fuel for Bloomberg News. Kim, just give us the update on kind of where we are with this potential strike and, and what are the insiders saying and how it might play out? Um, sure. Well, we know, um, you know, at this point, President Biden gotten personally involved. I, there was um, a meeting this morning. Try, you know, the, of course, you know, everyone's pulling out all the stops, you know, trying to make sure that this doesn't happen. Uh, but but right now, we really don't have an indication of, of which way it's, it's likely to go. Um, you already have the railroad. Uh, you know, it, it's, now it's been a couple days since we've heard that long distance distance uh, passenger routes um, in some cases um, are being cut and rail railroads um, starting today will stop picking up um, items like grain and well, this is a big I mean Kim this is the big issue I mean I think you know one of the issues agriculture I was I wasn't really aware of how much agricultural stuff actually travels by rail so what's the farmers to do I, this is harvesting season. i also let's just back up a second because I, I my understanding is that there are many different railroads many different kinds of train systems with many different purposes um you've got amtrak for example uh which people take to go back and forth from boston to washington dc and maybe stop in new york right and then you've got um you know freight grain shipments out of the midwest you've got freight moving trucks around for GM and Toyota. Are these, are, are all of these railroads using workers from one union or what's the deal? Can, can one strike derail, so to speak, all of these businesses? Well, uh, for, well, you brought up Amtrak and the, and the issue for passenger rail and also, and then for some commuter rails, not um, like out of like, like the Metro North or Long Island Railroad. Right. Although it is important to say that 
there's no indication that those would be affected, those particular ones. Although outside of Washington, D.C., in Virginia and Maryland, there are two that definitely would be affected. Los Angeles, Chicago commuter line definitely would be affected. And the reason for that, and also and the reason for some of these Amtrak um, passenger rail cuts is uh, for the long distance routes. Uh, and we'll probably see more announcements on that today. Um, that, that's because they, they either share a line with the freight, um, they either share lines with, with the freight railroads, or, there, or there's some kind of other overlap where um, it, they wouldn't have access anymore. So it's not, that, that's not really a worker issue, that's a, that's a real line issue. Kim, uh, the is, there, is there an indication that this is going to go down to the wire to Friday in terms of negotiating this, or is there a sense that maybe you know, the president will step in. We've seen it in the past with other, whether it's the airlines and, and kind of really push the two parties together. I mean, it's Wednesday here. So what's the inside thinking there? Well, I, I do think uh, there's a decent chance it's going to go right down to the wire. I mean, some people think, you know, we could even have, you know, a, a strike uh, that lasts, you know, half a day, a couple of days. Uh, at this point, it, it's, you know, most people with the midterm elections coming up, and uh, and just the hit that it would take to the to the U.S. economy. I mean, the the, the estimate is over two billion a day. Uh, the you know the the likelihood of the prospect of a prolonged strike is 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 hard hard to imagine. But it we are, yeah, you know. It could happen. We, we don't really know. I mean, I'll say, you know, like, um, you know, you brought up agriculture, uh, wheat farmers, for example, um, and you have spring wheat that's just, you know, uh, finishing up harvest. Um, you know, that that's an, that they have very few options other than yep. rail. And that's an, that's a case where most of that, the bulk of that um, or the biggest market is Mexico. Most of that goes um, by rail. So. You, that's an that's immediate effect yeah. where you where you can't get uh, right. you just can't get the grains there. Yep. All right, Kim. We'll stay on top of this story. We appreciate your reporting, Kim Chipman, reporter. She covers ag, food, water, fuel, uh, based out of a Chicago office uh, for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.